You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for today's podcast is from Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, Purcell Farrier Supply. We've just come out of the conference here in Denmark, which is at Henrik Berger's place, and it's called the Hoven e Centrum, the Hoof in Focus. And I'm taking the opportunity to speak to Dr. Jenny Hagen, who is an Associate Professor at Leipzig and also a Certified Farrier. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Simon. Okay, so just tell us something about Leipzig and the university, please. Okay, the Leipzig University, it's a university combining very different faculties and we have the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine, of course, in Leipzig, where I'm working and I'm employed there in an interdisciplinary position between research in a veterinary institute and the horse shoeing school belonging to the Clinic for Horses. So we are quite small uh, faculty, we are not that big, we have 120 students per year, five years and then they make their normal veterinary education and in the horse shoeing school, of course, the farriers. And how long do the farriers study for? It's, uh, in Germany we have the system that they have to join the school four weeks before they are allowed to make the practical education with their master. So we have them four weeks, then they are in the field with their master for two years and then they come back for four months uh, to make all the courses and the education for the final public exam. Okay, so they get about 20 weeks training uh, at college, four months four plus? Months, uh, yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah I mean, the education is also, we have modules from the German association, they also attend, but they're not in the schools, they yeah. vary between different places, so yeah. But in the UK, during a four-year apprenticeship, that's a similar amount of time. I think ours do 23 weeks, mm-hmm. but it's spread differently. Yeah. Okay, um, Tell me what your first experience with horses was. <laughs> with horses? Yeah. Um, well, when I was 10, my mom decided she would like to learn riding. Not me, my mom. <laughs> uh, so she took riding lessons. And of course, as a kid, you would like to join her. So I asked her after a while if I could also start riding. And we made it together. It's now 25 years ago. And she bought some horses, some normal Icelandic ponies and a Norwegian horse. So we had them behind our house and... That was my first contact, and they are still there. <laughs> yes, well, that, that's usually been my experience, that the, the herd at any house grows as the, as the family or as the children get older because they need bigger horses, but they don't get rid of the, <laughs> the No, no, we, st- we still ride them. Yes. The, the mare is now 22, and she was uh, one of our first horses. She's still in use. Now, I'm going to ask you some quick questions. Hot shoeing or cold shoeing? Hot shoeing. Concave shoes or flat shoes? Flat shoes. Loop knife or straight knife? Both. Okay. Five, six or seven nails per shoe? Per shoe. <laughs> I thought the size. Uh, six. Chestnut or grey? What? I don't you, don't you don't know what a chestnut colour is? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave that one. You've done well because you answered the other questions quite determinedly. So can you tell me what the subject of your PhD was? Of my PhD, yeah. <laughs> I think this you don't want to know because I uh, shortly after study I thought I will go to the bovine practice, 
So I wrote so about... So it was good, uh, cattle PhD. It was a cattle PhD, indeed. Okay. Yeah. I was still working with a farrier at home, but uh, since I had the opportunity to make a quick, uh, good, proper PhD in the, ho in the cattle clinic, I made it there. Okay. So did you stay the whole time at your university, or did you move out and see practices of that? Or have you just remained there the whole time? No, I... After my PhD, I went to Argentina and other countries to work and travel there a little bit, also in the equine industry. Then I was in a practice to be the substitution of a pregnant colleague part-time, still employed part-time in university. Um, and then I, since 2011, I have a full-time position at university. Before this, I was also in practice, yeah. And what got you interested in feet and hooves of horses? This was directly after school. I wanted to earn money because I'm living in a very small village. I wanted to have some extra money and I asked my farrier to take me as a helper just to lift the hooves for him. And uh, he was not very happy in the beginning, but, but after one day he said, okay, I'm allowed to come one week. And with this week, uh, it became six months. So we drove six months in a row. And then during study, I always came back to work with him in the semester breaks. And, and now, on top of all your other achievements, academic achievements, you're a certified farrier. Yes. So, is that um, recognised across Germany, or is it a local...? No, no, it's across Germany. It's a public exam, yeah. and it's uh, uh, for the whole country, for the whole Germany, actually whole Europe. We are also in the European... Um, we are school certified by European oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was part of the, the, yeah. the movement to do that um, yeah. many years ago. So, we have the public exam, and it's... Yeah. That's great. In whole Europe, okay. Certification. And um, you're still shoeing? Yes, sure. <laughs> and you make shoes? Yes. Okay. Well, that's. I'm. Uh, I'm sure it's a break from the academic work as well. I think you have a very strange picture of my work. <laughs> I don't know. My usual week is that I have everything more or less equal distributed. I'm part-time employed in the institute, and I have my at the moment uh, five doctoral students. Um, and I still have to go more or less each day in the horseshoeing school, educating the farriers. They're forging with them at the anvil, yeah. but also caring for clinical cases coming inside the mm -hmm. hospital. But uh, I also have an ambulant van, so sometimes I have days where I drive out and shoe horses all day long. So I have indeed everything. Okay, well that seems a great mix. Any current projects, research projects, um, which relate to the foot and the hoof? Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, I how many of your PhD students are studying the horse and actually, actually, uh, from these five PhD students, four are studying at the moment something at the distal limb or locomotion at the of the horse. Okay. So, yeah, we have a nice uh, project about the superficial flexor tendon running. Yeah. Where you also investigate biomechanical properties in the normal tendon and in injury tendon and how it uh, changes between healing progress, for example. Um, we have again some different studies running about influence of shoeing on the swing phase, for example, and yeah, some things like this. Okay, well, if you if you're making shoes, uh, what's your favourite shoe to make? Oh, I, the funny thing is, it changes because I uh, always watch YouTube, and if I find a nice shoe, I uh, try to forge it directly in the same evening. But I, in the moment, I really like the salmon side wedge shoe. Really? Yeah. I, I think I'm quite proud I made a nice one, <laughs> I <Okay>. think. <laughs> so you, you've given two wonderful uh, presentations uh, here at this conference, and, and a lot of it was to do with loading and, and weight distribution. 
And actually, as far as how we can affect that by trimming and shoeing. But I'm sure you'll correct me if I've got it wrong. It seems to me that often we can't overcome confirmation by our trimming. In other words, that seemed a fixed, uh, should we say, factor in the horse. Yeah, I mean, confirmation is not <coughs> fixed in general because the development of the horse changes. Yeah, it's not just our impact. There are so many factors changing conformation in the horse. Uh, I mean, Mike yesterday gave a new nice list. Yeah, or you also have this nice list how load affects conformation. Yeah, and it's always a changing thing. If we have a, if, if we as farriers have the highest impact, or maybe it's the rider or the management or the keeping or whatever, that is something very difficult and very various. It's individual. Yeah. Well, I think that was one of the things I got out of your presentation as well, was how we affect individual horses differently. In other words, it doesn't seem possible to have a fixed trimming regime. Yeah. I think one thing is there's not a standard solution for conformations or trimming and shoeing, so you have to check each single horse individually. And I think you shouldn't overestimate your own impact because we are not the only ones influencing horses. Okay, well, that's, uh, I think that's a problem probably most of us have that we. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> we'd like to think we have a really big effect on the horses. So, so in some ways, there's a difference. I, I don't say that we don't have any effect, yeah. It's yeah. just that you can't uh, say it in advance. Yeah? So, you should go away from all these ideal thinkings. Yeah. yeah. So, do you think, uh, for example, I'm wrong to use the T-square method for, for trimming horses? I would never say that uh, there's a wrong or right trimming method because I made a study on this and I think each single trimming method might fit to one or a few horses or some horses and there might some horses where you will have a miss succeed. So in the end you can't say it's the trim trimming method which is right or wrong, it is always the person who apply it. Okay. Now, you, you stated in your presentation with regard to breakover, and of course, it's something that I think Barrier has been interested in this for an awful long time, but particularly in the last 20 or so years when we've uh, seen more rolled toes and rocker toes. So how much can we affect the gait of the horse by altering the toe? I think you can affect it um, quite a lot. It don't has to be very obvious all the time because often in particular sports horses can compensate a lot but the muscle effort definitely you can affect the strain on the super uh, of the deflexor tendon and on the navicular region you definitely can affect the strain on the dorsal hoof capsule you can affect so i think with breakover you have a lot of possibilities to relieve things or to make it easier or sometimes a little bit more difficult for the horse just to clarify that when farriers say they want to speed up breakover mm. <laughs> yeah. Is that possible? Uh, until now, there's no proof, no scientific proof that you can shorten breakover duration with yeah. a modified toe on the shoe. You can reduce pressure peaks, you can reduce moment arms or strain on tendons, whatever, but the stance or breakover duration stays more or less unaffected. Until now, we are still working on this, so we have new sensors, so we it seems that in milliseconds you see differences, but this is not ready yet. But in other words, if you can uh, alleviate some of the strain, so for example, if you have a, a deep digital flexor tendon injury, that is a good thing to do then. Yeah. So, okay. But 
if we, for example, have a horse that overreaches with its hind foot, it's not a reasonable thing for us to expect that we can get this front foot out of the way quicker by putting on a rolled toe. Um, you can try it. You st I still would apply it from the practical side. I always would apply it because um, I think maybe they're not faster, but maybe it's a little bit easier for them. And maybe the muscles and everything changes. And I still would still work on the hinds as well to avoid this problem. But uh, yeah. Okay. And I know you had some particular studies that it's so, been... So again, and, and yeah, it's not maybe not just the breakover duration, it's also the moment in time the whole gait when it starts breakover. Yeah, it doesn't have to be quicker, but maybe in an earlier point in time, for example. You know what I mean? Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So it don't has to be in the moment, it stays the same, it's still the same milliseconds, but maybe he starts breakover a little bit earlier, so the hinds don't get that close to the horse, you know what I mean, I guess. Okay, so the time of the breakover is the time between the heel lifting mm -hmm. off to the toe moving the ground. Yeah, and this stays the same, but uh, the moment when heels are starting lift off, might maybe, be, for example, might be a little bit earlier. Yeah. And you'll be able to find that out soon and tell us. Yeah, I will try. I hope in one or two years I will sit here and you can give you a speech about uh, breakover duration. <laughs> I don't okay. know. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. <laughs> I just wanted to pause this week's interview quickly to let you know about Simon's new podcast survey. We'd love for listeners to take a look at it and send in your answers. You'll find a few questions about podcasts, what you'd like to hear more of on this one, and how we can improve your listening experience overall. It's just a short one and shouldn't take too long, so head over to Simon's Facebook page at facebook.com slash Curtis, where you'll find a link to the survey. Or if you look in the notes for this episode below, I'll leave a link there for you also. Okay, back to the interview. Now, we, we obviously, again, believe we have a, a certain effect by the way we shoe horses. But of course, the ground that they're working on affects things a lot. So if the ground is penetrable, in other words, if the shoe goes into the ground, that changes quite a lot of things, doesn't it? So can mm -hmm. you describe how how that affects? The ground conditions affect the weight-bearing surface of the hoof, of course. The more penetrable the ground is, the more surface is available for the hoof uh, to bear the acting load or the pressure. Yeah. That's one thing. And some shoes work very different on different grounds. So, for example, if you have a extension, a lateral or palmar extension, whatever, at the shoes on firm ground, they give, of course, stabilization, but they also act as a leverage, for example. On penetrable ground, you can alter with the same modifications the angulation of the hoof and the distal limb, for example. Yeah, so you have different strain on joints and ligaments. So the ground is a component we always should consider if you make a corrective shoeing, for example. Okay. I was taken by the fact that towards the end of your last presentation, you showed an open-toed shoe, open-toed bar shoe, I should mm -hmm. say, some people would call it a reverse shoe, um, but you, your, your loading pattern showed how much it loaded the dorsum, okay, not, not the part that was missing, but should we say about where the End second the and third, yeah, mm -hmm. and it really increased the loading there, didn't mm -hmm. it, which yeah. cannot be a good thing if that's uh, what we're doing. For example, mm -hmm. it, it's often said to be used as a, uh, a shoe for laminitis mm -hmm. or for chronic founder. Yeah. I think it's a very difficult shoe. You can have a good effect if you consider some uh, aspects. And one is that at the end of the branches where the toe 
region starts to be relieved, you have high pressure peaks. So if you apply this shoe, you should grind the end of the branches carefully. You should maybe apply a packing or a cushion or whatever, just to reduce the pressure peaks. Then you can optimize probably break over for the affected horses and loading the bars, uh, the, the frog as well. But it's not an easy shoe. It's not that you can take a shoe out of the box, turn it around and nail it on the hoof. That's a bad thing. Yeah. To be quite honest, I was never somebody who used open-toed bar shoes. I don't use it either, but a lot of farriers do it in the field, I notice. Well, maybe they should stop. Well, how I said, if they consider some modifications to make it uh, more comfortable for the horse, I think it's not a bad shoe. Maybe. <laughs> okay, I need to ask you my deep philosophical question, which is, what do you think is the greatest hurdle that people have to overcome in their lives? I think the greatest uh, hurdle is um, to find a good balance between de developing himself or somebody so that you can develop yourself to be uh, maybe in your private uh, area but also in your professional area and to always be curious, not to sticking somewhere and then you just stay there because of your routine and because maybe you're too lazy or too scared to try new things because I think then you are unhappy. Okay, thank you. I know that's a, a difficult question that just gets thrown at you <laughs> from nowhere. But if we can get back to, to loading and, um, and horses' confirmation. So throughout their lives, they are changing. Um, they're changing because of aging, but maybe they're changing because of injuries or, or just the way they're being used over a long term. Um, and you can, you can see that in the changing loading in the hooves here. Yeah, definitely. And can you relate uh, changing loading uh, to hoof shape? Yeah, definitely. I think the hoof is more or less a mirror of all the acting forces, changes, load, also how the nutrition of the different structures is uh, affected by the load. And um, it's not just the hoof, it's also all components inside the hoof capsule the distal phalanx, the dermis, blood circulation, upper bones, so everything is affected by load, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, can you, can you describe what happens to the hoof? Should we say if we get a, uh, an injury to the left fore, uh, long-term, not, not non-weight bearing, but should we say that's reduced the weight bearing over a period of time? What do you think is gonna to happen to that hoof? To the, to the relief, to not weight-bearing hoof. Yeah, it depends how, usually if you have a hoof not weight-bearing, often it grows different. Yeah. yeah. Usually, in my opinion, often it gets a little bit steeper depending how they load it. Yeah. Um, of, of course, you have a completely different wear pattern, but I think the more obvious changes often affect the other side. So. And what happens on the other side? Mm. Flattens off? Often it flattens, but sometimes you have more wear there. You see some sole hemorrhages, whatever, how severe you have the load asymmetry. But um, yeah, definitely you see changes. You see it the younger the horse, the more obvious it becomes, I think. Okay. Um, so we have a chance when horses are young to improve their conformation, mm -hmm. don't we? But we don't have much effect, or we don't have any effect, should we say, on the horse when it's five years old? It's very, very limited. I think you can 
still work on the muscles and on the tendons so that's a, uh, it's a circle sometimes yeah you have a not optimal conformation let's say it like this yeah, yeah. and then you have a uneven load on joints and ligaments and tendons and these tissues are changing every year so there's a turnover in all these tissues so it will adapt to this load i think we can't really change the whole conformation but we can maybe care for improving it as much as possible and keeping it away from getting worse okay so from the point of view from a farrier's point of view uh, we're sort of managing yeah. the conformation That's but we shouldn't kid us, yeah. yeah we shouldn't uh, kid ourselves that we're changing it yeah yeah okay in the older horses yeah in the older horses yeah, yeah of course i mean I, i've made a living of trying to yeah. change them in in young horses yeah, okay what what would be uh, should we say one of the main findings or some of the main findings from your studies that would help farriers in their work what do you think that the, the advice that comes from your studies is i think um one of the i'm most proud on that I could show how you can affect by trimming the load distribution. So this is something you could really consider. So I think it's a very good point at the moment that uh, so many farriers care for plain and leveled uh, trim, for example, or that they really consider how to relieve different stretches. So this I could really prove very well in the, with the pressure plates. Then I think another other aspect is that there is not an ideal gait pattern, that you have to accept the individual gait pattern. That's very important as well. With shoeing, I think I could show quite well how to relieve the deep digital flexor tendon and the superficial flexor tendon and uh, how to aim the relief of the fetlock region. This is also something which is described quite well in my work. Okay, what's the easiest way that, as a farrier that we can relieve the fetlock region? I think with a palmar extension plus or without change in angulation. That depends on the horse. And the easiest way we can relieve uh, an injured Superficial flexor tendon. <laughs> it's funny. Still with the palm. Uh, you asked me for the superficial one, no? The first yeah, one. Yeah, I did. Yeah, superficial. Yeah, but that before this, as a suspension. No, we were talking about the deep digital flexor tendon. Uh, sure, sorry. The the, the <coughs> easiest way to relieve the deep digital flexor tendon is with a good break over and probably with a, a heel elevation and a little palmar extension and the superficial flexor tendon. I usually make a um, palmar extension and probably not as much uh, angle change. Okay, so there is, shall we say, mechanical things we can employ to help. Yeah. But that. I must say it's a little bit like laminitis, for example, there's not a shoe for the superficial flexor tendon, there's not a shoe for the deep digital flexor tendon, you always have to ask the horse. Yeah, take each case yeah. as an individual. Uh, Jenny, we, we saw towards the end of your presentation uh, where you showed a horse with a banana shoe or whether we call it a full rocker shoe. I wonder if you can tell me something about the effect that has in general on the gait. Well, um, you reduce some, let's say, support in the heels and the toe. I mean, this is actually a positive thing for the shoe because they want to relieve these areas, but uh, you also miss some stability. So we saw on firm ground, if you have a full rocker shoe that they land and then they have a kind of tipping. So they go dorsal and palmar and then they have a rocker motion. And I think Within the, the stance phase. So it's not a smooth on the heel, roll forward and yeah. then off. So no, it's they have an initial contact, usually in one side, and then they load the limb. And during this landing process, they have this they unstable uh, movement. Yeah. Okay. 
But you would still say that in certain circumstances it can be a benefit, this shoe? Yeah, sure. I mean, as an orthopedic shoe, I mean, usually horses affected by severe problems and, and pain, they are not competing and they are not really uh, walking that much on uh, firm ground. And I think for orthopedic cases, it might be a quite good solution, but I, I'm not a big fan. I don't want to say it's wrong, but I'm not a big fan of using these shoes in sports horses. They are okay. competing or trained. Well, well, that's, uh, I've never done that, but I have had an unusual case of a unilateral chronic founder, quite severe, mm -hmm. and I used this shoe and it made her go so much better. Yeah. But of course, she's, she was a retired horse and, and, yeah, and quite a severe orthopedic problem, so I, I was quite pleased with the effect, I mm -hmm. have to say, but, but I think the point you made is, yes, on, on that sort of case, but not on... Well, there was was a trend, or there were a few farriers applying these kind of shoes also in competing or riding horses. So, how I said, in orthopedic cases, it's often a quite good solution. But uh, as soon as they are more dynamic, you should be able to create something more normal. Uh, Jenny, I wonder if you could say something for me in German. It's a little bit of fun that we have where my interviewees don't have English as their first language. Can you say for me? Vets need to listen to farriers more. Tierärzte müssen mehr auf Hufschmiede hören. Good, good instruction to all the German vets. Thank you. <laughs> we've got to get back to this conference because actually we've got something that both of us are interested in, in, uh, in looking at. It's okay. really been good speaking to you. I have just one uh, yeah, comment course. because you asked me for my PhD. This was on cattle. Yeah. Now everybody thinks I'm a cattle mediciner. But uh, you haven't asked me for my postdoc thesis because okay, <laughs> they are actually okay. All right. the more you're, important you're, thing. You're quite right, and I, I stand corrected. So, so tell us about your, your postdoc <laughs> no, you thesis. Ask. No, just I just want to say it because this is indeed about the biomechanics of the distal limb and how it is affected by trimming and chewing, and yeah. and it is indeed a complete thesis with. 20 publications, I think, where I concluded everything I made in the last 10 years. So this is indeed something about uh, hooks and biomechanics. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you... It, I mean, if it proves nothing else, it proves that these podcasts, I am coming into the room and just genuinely asking you questions to find things out. So, yeah, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Once more, thank you very much. I thank you for inviting me. <laughs> We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.